couldn't have asked for a more appropriate introduction not to have words um, with worship. Because something that I want to draw our attention to with the Bible, I talked last time, the last Sunday right before New Year's. I talked about enjoying the Bible as the story that it is. I brought up, you know, a dozen roses and I had torn them into pieces. And I said, I'm going to give these to my wife. Well, what's the difference between a dozen broken roses and a dozen roses in a vase? They're the same thing. You're still getting a dozen roses, right? But often we get hung up on tearing the Bible apart and looking at every little, here's a thorn here, here's a little leaf here, and we can look at everything in its individual bits and pieces. But the problem is we miss this full story. And this Bible is actually written in the beginning to an oral society, a society that didn't have books like we do. They had some documents. They had official documents, they had receipts, things like that, but they didn't have books like we do. And so things were passed on orally. And so you would hear these stories um, be passed down. And that's why, do you have the slides? I wanted to talk a little bit. I encourage everybody to look at the Bible as a story and I wanna look at how that story begins. And it's about reading the Bible with ancient ears because originally this would have been listened to. The stories in the Bible would have been, let me think of it this way. You go to the movies today and you see all the cool graphics, the CGI, stuff that we would have never thought about. You look at, you watch some movie from the 50s and you're like, this is so fake, this is hokey. Back then to them, it looked real. Think of Alfred Hitchcock, the black and white, the psycho, the, the blood going down the, the drain of the shower. We look at that now and we're like, that's so fakey. Did they really believe that back then? Those people back then were on the edge of their seat watching that. Well, if you go back to this generation who was first reading the Bible, who would have been around the Genesis time, they would have been on the edge of their seats listening to the stories of Genesis. What's now become mundane for us. We have Bibles in, you know, it, we have innumerable Bibles around the world now. As he said, my passion is teaching. And so today my goal is to teach a little bit about the Bible, but also to renew people to an enthusiasm that this would have held. I don't know if you've ever tried it, but they have audible Bibles. And instead of read the words, just listen to the story and think about how that changes you. With worship today, I don't know if anybody's uncomfortable not having words up there, but it changes how your mind, how your mind works. Now you have to listen to him lead worship and you don't have words to follow along. You're waiting for him to say the next word and you're wondering what's gonna happen. So in this hearing dominant culture, see if I can make this work with my broken hand. What I wanna do is look at with it fresh consideration. So this is what we probably all picture the 10 commandments as. I know it's images like this that as a kid, I thought of. You have two tablets that Moses got, right? And on each tablet, there were five commands making the total of 10 commandments. What I wanna consider is that maybe perhaps we've been locked into ways of thinking that could be renewed or refreshed. Technically, if you go back to the history of the Old Testament, this is what it says. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain carrying the two tablets of the covenant in his hands, tablets that were written on both sides, written on the front and on the back. And so this is what the words actually are telling us is that the commandments, the tablets were written on the front and back. If you go back to the ancient idea of what they did with the law back then, you would have a law written on two tablets. One tablet was given to the people so that they had the law and the other tablet was given to the ruler. So he knew what his obligation was for the law and towards his people. This may be something that we never even thought of. It was something that I never knew before I started to research the Bible. I always took it for granted. Five commandments on one tablet, five commandments on the other. You have two tablets but actually the two tablets would have been identical. And 
so one of them is for God to remember his covenant with the people. One of them is for the people to remember their covenant with God. So it's things like this that can give us fresh consideration of the words that we're reading. One other one, here's a time of uh, Noah with the ark. And in Matthew, Christ quotes it. He says, for as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the son of man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. I'll just stop there. So this is often taken for the belief that people are gonna be raptured out of the world. That's one belief that you can take from this. The other idea, if you consider the, the language here, who was actually taken out of the world in Noah's day? The righteous were left. The unrighteous who are eating and drinking, marrying, they are the they that may have been taken out of the world. So it's fresh consideration that we can look at and we can consider what do the stories mean? I'm not telling you a right or a wrong way. There's many ways to consider this. I'm telling you a consideration. So it says two will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Well, if you consider the days of Noah, Noah was the one that was left. It was the righteous. God took the unrighteousness out of the world. As we consider the Bible, here's the thing that I wanna focus on primarily is that the Bible doesn't say you need to fully understand creation and accept Christ as your savior to be saved. As we know, there's numerous denominations. There's tons of different churches that believe different things. And I'm not saying that one of them has a lock on the truth and you have to know that truth in order to be saved. People can read the Lord of the Rings. They can read wonderful stories and each of them based upon their life, those stories can impact them in a different way. Even worse, the Bible doesn't say fully understand all things and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So again, there's room for study, for trying to figure out what the truth is, but maybe we arrive at different conclusions and we may not know. Paul said we see through a glass darkly right now. And so we may not know until we actually get to heaven what some of these truths really are. But I wanted to get a start today on the stories of the Bible. How a story opens tends to be critical to understanding how the story continues on. And this is a story that actually continues into our lives, would be my point. The Bible was not originally broken up into verses and chapters. It was just written in one stream of consciousness. And I believe that stream of consciousness continues today. But what we're gonna look at is the opening chapters. There's a little small here, but this is the boring groundwork. This is the stuff that I nerd out about. I love this stuff. Genesis, just to know where we are in history, was probably written after the Israelites were captive to Babylon. And so the Babylonians in the 500s BC were captive to Babylon. Some of the evidence of this is that they speak of Edomite kings from the time of Solomon. So Genesis speaks of kings that existed during the time of King Solomon. They speak of Canaanites. These Canaanites didn't exist until King David. So Genesis was probably written as we know it after King David at least. And it uses the land of the tribe of Dan. And this didn't come about until the days of the book of Judges. So there's things through the book of Judges, through King David, through King Solomon. These are facts that are contained in Genesis. Well, how did they write about some of these facts? They had likely happened. So what we find is in 539 BC, Israel is liberated from Babylon. They've lost, they've been under captivity for 50 years. Think about what happens in 50 years. How many generations have been born? You have people who never knew the promised land. And now they're liberated to rebuild the people of God, the nation of God. 
So what do you have to do when you've been liberated, but you don't know who you are as a people? You have people who have never known the promised land. They've never experienced the promises of God. You need to re-educate. What does that mean in an oral society? It means to renew people back to their stories. This is who God was. So likely what they believe happened is that um, scribes went through some of the histories of Israel and they began to compile Genesis as we know it from various historical documents. They were looking to see, to renew the people of God back to the God who they should have been following. For 50 years, people have been taught something different. They have been educated under the Babylonian education system. And now they need to be renewed to God. So that way they return to Israel, rebuild the temple, become the people of God again. So with that in mind, a couple of creation stories begin our Bible. We hear the creation story, seven-day creation, and then we have another creation story that begins in Genesis 2-4, and it talks more directly about Adam and about how God told him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These stories have a little bit of a contrast. The first story, creation, takes place over six days. The Hebrew word for it is yom. So there's six yoms that take place in the first story. The second story is going to speak of creation as in the yom that creation took place. In the first story, humanity is the pinnacle of creation. In the second story, man is created. Once the earth has plants, then animals are made, and then woman comes along. Throughout the first story, everything is good, 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 and then very good. In the beginning, near the beginning of the second story, God says things are not good. Man's alone. So there's a little bit of contrast between these stories. And what I'd like to do consider this is to review a little bit of ancient cosmology again this is what i nerd out about this is the picture of what give me a second here i gotta switch hands this is what the ancient people would have considered the earth looked like if you read in psalms it talks about the earth stands on its pillars they would have believed that there were columns of earth the earth was flat um Water surrounded us. In fact, Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 5, that the earth was made out of water and by water. Three parts is believed to um, create the cosmos. You have the heaven, you have the earth, and you have the underworld. In Exodus, the first commandment, God says, you shall not make any other gods. Don't worship any other gods. Don't make anything out of anything above the earth, on the earth, or under the earth. Those are the three parts of the cosmos that they understood. Philippians 2.10 says that every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. This is how they understood the cosmos to be. And so this is the frame of reference they're working with. So as they're coming out of Babylon, what I'd like to do for a second is pause. And just consider what the story might sound like. So put us in their shoes. We've been under captivity for 50 years to the Babylonians. The Babylonians had a story about creation. This story of creation said that the earth came about by an intergalactic battle between two gods. The god Marduk slayed his great-grandmother, and he sliced her down the middle, and he took those slices, and he created this bubble in which our world exists. And then he said, by the way, I hate all these little menial tasks I have to do, so I'm going to make man, and he's going to just do the task that I want. I want done that they bore me. So for 50 years, Israelites have grown up under this idea. 
So what happens? They need to re-educate, right? So in the first story, God exists. There's no argument that God doesn't exist. It just says in the beginning there was God. They don't try to reason it. They just say there was God. And they say the earth existed without form and it was empty. And then they say God sliced the firmament. Here's the word for firmament. Tihom is the Hebrew word for firmament. It comes from the Babylonian word, Tiamat. Tiamat is the great-grandmother God that Marduk supposedly sliced. So what the Israelites had learned in the story from the Babylonians was that the earth was created after a huge struggle, and mankind was made as an afterthought. They, the, these two gods struggled, and finally the one god overcame, the other, overcame Tiamat and killed her. But in the re-education, what do the Israelites learn? They learned that it didn't take any effort. God slices the Tihom with a word. He doesn't battle some other spiritual being. The Tihom exists in their mind as the firmament. And God slices it with a word. Then the Babylonian description of uh, creation would have gone on and talked about the rest of the struggle and how Marduk, the Babylonian God struggles to make creation. He struggles to make mankind. What happens in the first story of creation? With a word, everything that God makes comes about. So you begin the re-education. This would have been something, if you can put them, if you can put yourself in their shoes back in the Babylonian days, you would have hung on this. What? God made it with a word? What? We were made by God purposefully. We were put next to God. We were made as the pinnacle of creation. This is something that would have actually revolutionized people's lives because they had been taught that we were a byproduct. God was bored and he didn't want to do little tasks, so he made us. Go, to, go do what I want. The interesting thing about the ancient people is that they weren't as concerned with us as the how we were made of, but the why we were made of. What is our purpose and function? And you can see that as Genesis opens up. The earth is formless and void. Then what happens? God first forms. He forms light, separate from the darkness. He forms the earth. He forms things. Then he fills. So you get forming and filling. And everything has a function. So after the first story, we see God, all-powerful, creating with a word. The second story then returns to the garden, and God makes man. And he is with man, and he says, oh, it's not good. Wait a minute. The people back then would have been in shock. We just heard everything was good, and then it was very good, right? Well, God makes man. He says, it's not good. He's alone. So what do you start to do? He comes down next to man, and he starts to form out of the dirt. The animals. Here, Adam, what's this? Name it. I don't know that. Here, Adam, what's this? And what people would have been shocked at back then is the intimacy that man had with God, the relationship. Man is not made as an afterthought in the story. Man is made initially, and then he gets to join God in creation. He gets to name the creation. He gets to see God work, and he gets to stand next to God. Again, this would have revolutionized the world back then. 
So God makes all these things out of the dirt. And he says, what's this, Adam? What's this? And Adam's naming everything. And then he says, but I didn't find anything for you. You got to rectify the situation. So then he makes woman. And he says, there you go. Now man and woman are together and man is complete. And you have humanity. So with this story, there's an intimacy that the Babylonians would have never known. The Israelites under captivity for 50 years would have never known about this. Except for a chosen few. God talks in the Bible about how he always has a faithful remnant. And it's this faithful remnant that likely held on to these stories and remembered them orally, passing them down to their children and their their children's children. And as they passed them down, after 50 years, they got their freedom. And they said, now is our time to re-educate our people about who God is. And they published this in the book of Genesis. They published this. It's an incendiary topic. They were the only people, as far as I know and as far as scholars have said, that were monotheistic people, followed one God. So we look at how much Christianity has been persecuted, how much Christianity stands alone. When you consider these stories, these people are standing alone. These people are creating stories that the rest of the world would have mocked. The rest of the world would have said, are you crazy? But they're creating these stories. So from the first story, what we find is that God is above everything. In the Bible, as you read the story, water is associated with chaos. Water is chaos. In the beginning, it says God's spirit hovers over the waters. Back then, people didn't have, they weren't seafaring people like we are now. We've, we've conquered the waters, right? Back then, water terrified people. We were not made to be aquatic people. Water terrified people. That's why in Revelation, when everything is complete, you see God on his throne before water that looks like glass. Because God reigns over the chaos. It's no longer, chaos is not chaotic before God. So here, God is completely in control. The water representing chaos is split by a word. And that's your firmament. So God splits it. Unlike any other deity, our God is so mighty, he creates the voice, chaos and sand chance there is not even a fight. He forms what is formless, and he fills it. Again, when you form something and you fill it, there's purpose. This would have revolutionized the world because the way they understood it, everything was a byproduct of a great war between gods. We are fortunate that we ended up luckily to be alive because you just were the byproduct of something else. But no, there was a purpose to this. We were formed, everything was formed and filled for a purpose. And of his creation, humanity is a pinnacle. Man is not made until the sixth day. You have everything else made and then man is saved for last. You save the best for last, right? And man is the live image bearer. Now what this means is that man has near equality with God. Back in the ancient days, again, this is why I love facts from the ancient days because it shows you how significant things are. Kings in the ancient days, they would create these wooden images of themselves and they would put them throughout their kingdom in order to remind the people, I'm your king. These inanimate images, you better respect them just like you respect me. Yeah, they can't do anything, but you'll respect them. This is to remind you that I reign over you even though I'm not present with you. Man was actually created as a living image bearer and put throughout God's kingdom to remind the people of God. But his image is not an inanimate log that's been carved into the likeness of a king. He made his image to be like him. Mankind can create. Mankind was given authority by God. It's not just some log set in a temple to remind you of who the king is over the land. 
But the image was given authority. There's a passage that says man was created a little bit lower, a little bit lesser than the angels. It's interesting. If you go back and, and look at it, the original form was man was created a little lesser than God. Back during the King James time, they didn't want to put man that close to God. And so they took the word Elohim, which means God, and they actually made an angel. That's the only place in the Bible that they've ever considered making Elohim mean angel rather than God. And it was out of fear of putting themselves on a pedestal next to God. But when you actually go back to the original translation, it says man was made a little lower than God, which actually might put us over the angels. Angels were never said to be God's image. It's weird. And so when you hear this story again, it is elevating man. It is revolutionizing the world because no longer are we an afterthought to do the duties that gods are bored to do. We are now elevated near God's position. We are given a purpose and a function beyond just a menial task at work. So when you get into this story and you begin to read it, back then it was incendiary. So the second story, as I said, God co-creates with mankind would have been unbelievable back then. You're saying your God gets down in the dirt with you and he makes things? Not gonna happen. God is distant from man. God doesn't get dirty with man is how they would have understood it. Unlike any of the other deities, our God is personal with humanity. He wants them to work with him. Adam named the creations of God. Adam worked with God during creation is how this story considers it. And God cares to see our needs met. Back in these days, gods would, man must please God. Man was at the whim of the gods. If the gods wanted, if the gods willed it, it was gonna happen to man. Here, God wants to see the needs of humanity met. God cares about humanity. Of his creation, humanity is the closest to God in this story. Again, Psalm 8, 5. That's where it says, yet I have made them a little lower than God. We were intimate with God in creation is how this story portrays it. So in Malik versus Elohim, for 50 years, the Israelites learned that they were just a byproduct of Malik. But Elohim is a personal God. Elohim is a God that loves man, that wants man to have intimacy with him. What's interesting is that both these stories have differences. This is a consideration of these stories. After my, after my study, I believe that these stories are a little bit different. It's not because one isn't truthful and the other one is. They both hold truths that parallel each other. When taken in tandem, there's a reason these two stories were put together. When these stories come together, what you learn from them is that God is the sole source of creation in both of them but you learn that humanity holds a place of honor. In the one, humanity is at the pinnacle of creation. In the other, humanity is intimate with God. Both of those are places of intimacy. And you learn that the human, as male and female, make up a single social character. In the beginning, man and woman are created together on the sixth day. In the other story, man can find no partner until woman is created. So here's some things that I'd like to consider. Maybe you've never heard of the stories in Genesis 1 and 2 put this way before. I don't know. But these were created to transform people's thinking of the world. And so here's some other questions that 
you might be interested in reading up on the stories now in the Bible. I want to create maybe a taste for the stories. Why do we only fight against two of the three curses to this day? So woman was cursed with pain, more pain during pregnancy, right? Man was cursed to toil the soil. And man was, and man and woman were put in opposition. Man would try to rule over the woman. We have painkillers for childbirth. We have farming equipment to help toil the land. But why does patriarchy reign so highly in some places? Why don't we fight that curse? Why don't we fight the curse that man wants to reign over woman? Why don't we bring them back into the balance of this a single social unit that they are? Might be something to read the story and consider. Further in the story, you're gonna hear the sons of God and the Nephilim. This is something that a lot of people are curious about. I'm just bringing it up to maybe whet your appetite to read a little bit and consider what they might be. Some people may know the story of Noah. He gets drunk and he passes out naked in his tent. Ham comes in and sees his father naked, comes out and he starts joking with his brothers. Did you see our dad? Man, he got wasted. Noah wakes up and gets upset. So he curses Ham's son, Canaan. Out of three sons, he curses Canaan. Ham's the one that mocked his dad. Why does Canaan get cursed? If God's against child sacrifice, why did he tell Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac? And why was Abraham willing? These are some considerations that I don't necessarily have answers to, or there's multiple answers out there. Scholars are divided on these. But these are things that are curiosities to me, that if you read the story, it's interesting to consider. These are conundrums in my mind. With this in mind, I'd like to call back up the the worship team. And maybe... If we don't have the words to the song, it would be cool just to sit here and listen to the words be spoken over us and consider what an oral society might be. You hang on the words. You don't read ahead. You don't get that opportunity. You don't speed through. A lot of times we can read the Bible and we're like, oh man, can I get to this genealogy so fast? How can I, how, this genealogy is boring, right? But when you consider the words coming from someone else, you hang on to their words every moment. And the story or the song guides you through. Before you start really quick, I'd just like to pray for you guys. God, I thank you for this chance to share your word and to share the time in which it was created back in Gen- for Genesis. Thank you for this people that you've placed me with. I pray that you would renew in us a hunger for the stories that are our story It started back in Genesis and it continues into our day. Thank you for your providence and salvation in our lives. Amen.